1: Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God.
0: Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 14-16, through 16, New American Standard Bible Hello! I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're grateful to be with you today. We are currently doing a series on Anchored by Truth that we are calling Paul's Places. By Paul, of course, we're referring to the Apostle Paul, who wrote at least 13 of the books out of the 27 that comprise the New Testament. In this Paul's Places series, we are taking a look at Paul's letters to the churches that are identified in our Bibles by the names of the cities or region to which they were sent. This is our eighth episode in the series, so for anyone who has missed any of the previous lessons, we would strongly encourage you to go to our website, crystalseabooks.com, and check out the earlier episodes as well as any of our other series. Today, we're going to continue our look at Paul's letters to two churches that were located in modern-day Turkey. Last time on Anchored by Truth, we began our look at Ephesians and Colossians. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro, an author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why don't you remind us of the reason we wanted to do this Paul's Places series?
2: Well, of course, I'd like to start out by thanking our listeners for joining us here today. You know, many people, and perhaps most people, when they read the Bible, they tend to read the books of the Bible individually. And by that I mean when people read books like Ephesians or Colossians, which we're focusing on today, they tend to read or study that individual book. Well, of course, it's great when anybody reads anything in the Bible at all. But if we just isolate on one book at a time in the Bible, we tend to miss some of the patterns and connections that are present in Scripture. And what that may mean is that we don't always develop a full appreciation for the richness of Scripture and for the glorious message of redemption that Scripture contains. So, one of the things we want to do with this Paul's Places series is help people see a couple of things. First, that the content of the letters that Paul sent to those churches corresponds to the character and the culture of the places where those churches were located. Second, we want people to see that the letters that Paul wrote make complete sense from a human history and from a church history standpoint. Paul's letters are both consistent with the history and events of the Roman Empire in which Paul ministered, but they are also consistent with the phase of development that the early church was in at the time Paul wrote his letters. Those letters, of course, are the books of the Bible that we have in our New Testament. So in order to develop a good sense about how all this fits together... A lot of times it's better, it's necessary, in fact, to look across Paul's epistles and not just within them individually.
0: It's not that people can't learn and grow from studying books individually, but it is important to remember that the entire Bible is God's Word. And long before video games put Easter eggs in the games to reward especially diligent gamers, God put treasures in His Word that are only now seen by diligent students of the Bible. Now, we want to make it clear. We are not talking about some sort of secret wisdom that some spiritual traditions focus on. We are not saying that there is anything in the Bible that isn't available to everyone. To the contrary. We strongly believe God wrote the entire Bible for everyone. But as with anything, people who make the Bible a priority in their lives will derive things from studying it that casual readers will miss.
2: Amen. And a simple explanation of that was one example that we mentioned last time. Both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians contained the name of Tychicus. That's a little bit odd name to our modern English speaking ears, but Tychicus was actually a common name in those days. Tychicus was one of Paul's traveling companions and ministry partners. Tychicus was probably the one who carried the letters to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae, but strictly speaking, it wasn't necessary for Paul to have sent the letters with Tychicus. If Paul had just wanted to accomplish the simple task of someone transporting the letters, he could have used a gentleman named Onesimus, who is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 verse 9.
0: Colossians chapter 4 verses 7 through 9 say, quote, Tychicus is the dear friend who faithfully works and serves the Lord with us, and he will give you the news about me. I am sending him to cheer you up by telling you how we are getting along. Onesimus, the dear and faithful follower from your own group, is coming with him. The two of them will tell you everything that has happened here, Unquote. That's from the contemporary English version.
2: Right. So, if you read Colossians, you might wonder why Paul sent Tychicus and Onesimus to carry two letters. That doesn't seem to be too big a load. Certainly, either one of them could have handled the task.
0: But if you realize that the pair of them were also carrying another letter to Colossae, Tychicus' likely role becomes clearer. In addition to the letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, the pair was also carrying a letter to Philemon. Philemon either lived in Colossae or the vicinity, and Onesimus had either been a servant or a slave of Philemon's. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon to essentially tell Philemon to be kind to Onesimus when he returned. Paul went out of his way to be as forceful as he could, given the delicacy of the situation.
2: Well, why don't you read a section from Paul's letter to Philemon, from verses 10 through 20. Philemon is only one chapter, so this is going to be an extract from the Amplified Bible's version of that section of the book of Philemon.
0: Quote, I appeal to you for your own spiritual child Onesimus, whom I have fathered in the faith, while a captive in these chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you as well as to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, like sending my very heart. I would have chosen to keep him with me so that he might minister to me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without first getting your consent so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So if you consider me a partner... Welcome and accept him as you would me, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it in full, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me have some benefit and joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Unquote.
2: So, we can see from that section that Paul was intensely interested in seeing that Onesimus was well treated.
0: And you think that it's possible that this is one of the reasons Paul sent the two of them together?
2: I certainly think that that might have been part of what was in Paul's mind when he made his decision not just about writing these three letters, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, but also in deciding how to get them to their final destinations. Tychicus was, in effect, a senior member of Paul's ministry group, and so Tychicus's presence in Colossae would have added weight to Paul's request to Philemon that Philemon treat Onesimus kindly. At a minimum, Tychicus's presence would have made the trip from Rome, where Paul was imprisoned at the time, a lot more bearable for Onesimus. It would have been a journey of at least a few weeks for Onesimus and Tychicus to go from Rome to Colossae. And so if Onesimus had had to travel that distance by himself, well, that would have been a pretty rough journey for someone who had been a former servant or slave. This is a very simple example of how we can learn more about what was going on when we read various books of the Bible together than if we never looked at the total context of these various books. But it is also true that each epistle always contains evidence that Paul was fully aware of the individual cultural conditions of the churches to which he was writing.
0: Can you give us an example of what you're thinking about right now?
2: Sure. Let's take a look at some of what is mentioned in the letter to the Ephesians. The most famous architectural feature of the city of Ephesus in Paul's day was the temple of the Roman goddess Diana.
0: Diana was the Roman equivalent of the Greek goddess Artemis. Both were often labeled the goddess of the hunt, although their sphere of control went beyond just hunting. They both were considered to have special influence over the countryside, vegetation, and wild animals, and interestingly enough, childbirth.
2: In fact, the Temple of Diana in Ephesus was so magnificent and famous that it was labeled one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So, the goddess Diana, needless to say, was especially important to the town, to the city of Ephesus, in Paul's time.
0: And that's consistent with what we know about the cultures of cities within the Roman Empire. Each city tended to have a god or goddess that was particularly important to them. In this series, we noted that Venus was especially worshipped in the Greek city of Corinth, and Athena, or Minerva, in the Greek city of Athens.
2: The local god or goddess were thought to provide special protection to their city. And Diana's temple in the city of Ephesus was so magnificent that it was actually a tourist attraction. So the temple of Diana brought a lot of visitors to Ephesus. So there was a very flourishing trade in Ephesus for making souvenirs that the tourists who came to Ephesus would then take home with them. And a lot of these souvenirs were made of silver. So there was a very dynamic and flourishing silver trade in addition to all the other business that was generated for the city of Ephesus out of the Temple of Diana. So just like many major cities of today, the culture and economy of Ephesus were tied together.
0: The temple and worship of Diana were so important in Ephesus that in Acts chapter 19 verses 23 through 41 we hear about a riot that occurred that was led by a silversmith named Demetrius during the time Paul was ministering in Ephesus. Demetrius was so concerned about how many people were being converted to Christianity by Paul's teaching that he was concerned the souvenir and silver trades were going to suffer.
2: Yes, That riot was bad enough that shortly after it occurred, Paul left Ephesus, probably somewhat for his own safety and probably also for the safety of the church because he didn't want there to be continuing turmoil in Ephesus that affected the church just because of his presence there. But years later, when Paul wrote his letter, his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul could not help but hearken back to the fact that Ephesus, which was a worshiper of the temple Diana, all that in quotes, Paul could not help but contrast the difference in the relationship between Christ and his church with how the Ephesians viewed Diana. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, Paul says, and I'm quoting, None of us hate our own bodies. We provide for them and take good care of them, just as Christ does for the church, end quote. That's from the Contemporary English Version. And the believers in Ephesus would have appreciated the contrast that Christ provides for his people rather than the people having to provide for the gods and goddesses, which was the common view in pagan culture. The non-Christians in Ephesus saw themselves as being, and quoting, nurturers of Diana. And we know that from an inscription that was found in the city. Diana, in turn, is said to have made Ephesus, quote, the most glorious city in Asia. So, in Ephesians, Paul is reminding the Christian church in Ephesus that Christ is the one who makes his church glorious and holy. So, when you read Ephesians carefully, you see that Paul is drawing contrasts between how the pagans in Ephesus viewed the worship of Diana and their relationship with Diana, and in fact, the far better relationship that Christians have with Christ. Christ provides for his church, unlike the pagan worshipers who had to provide for their supposed goddess Diana.
0: So in effect, what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church, you are not giving up anything by belonging to Christ instead of worshiping Diana like most of your neighbors. Christ does everything for you that your neighbors believe Diana does for them, and even more. Christ, in fact, provides you with every possible spiritual blessing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 in the New International Version says, quote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, unquote.
2: Yes. And again, we have to remember that most of the churches, the overwhelming majority of the churches in Paul's day, they were relatively small by comparison to today. Most believers in those times met in house churches, individual gatherings of, say, 10, 20, 30, maybe 40, but certainly far smaller than the kind of church attendance that many of us are used to today. And of course, the churches in Paul's day were surrounded by a culture that was at best skeptical of Christianity and at worst, openly hostile.
0: Sounds kind of like today.
2: Well, I I hope we're not headed that way, but thankfully, if we are, we're not there quite yet and I pray that the church of our day can become the witness that our culture needs to never get there. But at any rate, it would have been pretty easy for believers in Ephesus to think that they were missing out on something by worshiping Christ rather than being like most of their neighbors and worshiping Diana. At a minimum, the believers in Ephesus, they weren't probably attending the public feasts and festivals like their neighbors, because attending those feasts and festivals would have meant worshiping or celebrating the false gods and idols that were present throughout their culture. So, to us, the fact that Paul promises us spiritual blessings and that we will be made holy and glorious, well, that's good news to us. But to those early believers in Ephesus, who were cut off from a lot of the common life of their neighbors, they didn't even have the Bible to turn to for comfort. The messages that Paul was bringing to them, well, that was literally food for their starving souls.
0: And that's part of what we want listeners to understand through this Paul's Places series. In writing the epistles that are books of our New Testament, Paul wrote scripture, but first and foremost, he was pastoring his flock. He was trying to impart not only doctrinal and instructional information, but also comfort and encouragement, and he had to do so in a way that didn't set off automatic claims that his letters were seditious. People living within the Roman Empire were expected to pledge allegiance to the emperor, and in the first century, the Roman state had begun to practice a form of emperor worship. That was a relatively recent development in their history and was a change from the earlier days when Rome's government was more republican form of government. But under the first Caesars, the emperor came to be viewed in the way some of their conquered entities, such as Egypt or Persia, had viewed their royalty as gods on earth. So not to be willing to profess Caesar as lord, not just a civic leader, was tantamount to sedition.
2: Yes. Now, when you read Paul's letters, you can see that he is both bold, but also careful. Paul is never reluctant to proclaim Christ as Lord and God. Paul will very straightforwardly proclaim Christ as God. But in Paul's letters, you don't see him demeaning the local gods or the state leaders. He lets the truth of the gospel push away the idols but he minimizes the impediments that those believers will face by not calling out the local belief systems by name. For instance, in writing to the Ephesians, Paul does not demean the goddess Diana by name. He certainly is well aware of the worship of Diana in Ephesus. He'd been there for three years. But Paul does not demean the goddess Diana by name. Rather, what Paul does is proclaim the superiority of Christ over every perceived spiritual or celestial power.
0: And Ephesians actually contains one of the most famous of the Bible's discourses on the reality of spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. Surely one of the most famous verses in all the Bible is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. Quote, We are not fighting against humans. We are fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. Unquote. That's from the contemporary English version.
2: And in the verses that follow that verse, Paul provides another of the best-known passages in the Bible where he talks about spiritual armor.
0: You're referring to Ephesians chapter 6 verses 14 through 17, Quote, Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news, so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." That's from the New Living Translation.
2: So, let's take a closer look at one part of that section, the part that's translated in our Bibles as, and I'm quoting, "...the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." The Greek word that Paul used, that is translated in our Bibles as sword, is makira. Now, I hope people aren't too offended by my pronunciation of Greek. I often go online and do pronunciation checks of difficult words, but frankly, you find out when you go online, a lot of times there is not a lot of unanimity among the people online even who are pronouncing these words. So, I'm calling the Greek word that is translated as the word sword in our Bibles as makira. Well, like most Greek words, this word is very precise. It doesn't just refer to general swords of all types. It refers to a relatively short sword that could have been up to about 19 inches long, although most of them were shorter. Now, one commentator on this part of the book of Ephesians, a lady named Patricia Holbrook, has said this about the makira. Of all the swords that a Roman soldier could use, this one was the deadliest. Indeed, the Makira could be as long as 19 inches, but it was often shorter, resembling a dagger. Therefore, it was usually used in close combat. It was razor sharp on both sides of the blade, and its very end turned upward, causing the point of the blade to be extremely sharp and deadly. And so that closes the quote from Patricia Holbrook.
0: Sounds pretty dangerous.
2: It was, to the enemy. But that's only part of the reason that I want to draw attention to Paul using that particular word. The makira was the sword that was most often used by an ordinary Roman infantryman of Paul's day. So I'm going to go into a bit of military trivia for a moment.
0: Oh boy. Well, you did go to West Point. But let's keep it family friendly.
2: We will. Military historians will often talk about how it's necessary to study tactics and weapons together. And without wanting to dwell on it too much, successful armies have always been those armies that knew how to combine the right tactic with the right weapon. For instance, ancient Greek armies were known for using the phalanx as a military formation. The phalanx was a formation where the warriors were extremely close together. They often interlocked their shields, and those warriors in the phalanx carried an eight-foot or even longer spear. Well, that long spear enabled them to engage the enemy at a distance. But for all of its military effectiveness, the phalanx did have a downside. Which was? Well, the coin of the realm in infantry combat in ancient times was how many warriors you needed to cover a particular amount of frontage. You know, the job of the infantry is typically to seize and hold ground. So men packed tightly together in a phalanx, that's good for mutual protection, but you need a lot of warriors to cover much ground. So one of the fighting formations used by the Romans so successfully was a square. And in this square, when they were on an open battlefield, the Romans did not interlock their shields. But they left a small amount of space between each of the soldiers. It was a sort of a small gap. Now, this sounds dangerous, but it was not when the soldiers all knew their role. So the key to keeping that square formation intact was that anyone or anything that stuck through that gap got slashed immediately.
0: So in that kind of fighting, a short sword was more effective than a longer sword. The soldier could hold his shield with one arm while keeping the other arm free for deploying his sword, cutting down anything that began to penetrate the formation. A sword that was too long in that situation couldn't have been used as effectively.
2: Right. And needless to say, the Roman army trained their infantry in how to fight in such formations on open terrain. And that allowed the Romans to cover more frontage with fewer men while still preserving their lethality. The square was a very effective offensive formation, And it was also very effective at defense when the various units maintained all the appropriate distances between the squares. So, for instance, the squares would allow archers or javelin throwers to go in front of the squares, launch their missiles, and then quickly move behind the infantry by retreating through the spaces that were open between the squares. Now, the Roman military training, discipline, and effectiveness was legendary. And that is one of the big reasons the Romans were so effective at building and maintaining their empire.
0: And this short sword, carried by the ordinary Roman soldier, was an important part of that system. I see what you're saying. The tactics and the weapon had to go together. But how does that fit in with the lessons we're learning from the letter to the Ephesians?
2: In Ephesians chapter 6 verses 14 through 17, we have the Apostle Paul doing what good writers routinely do. He was using a metaphor to teach important principles to his readers. So Paul used images that were common in his day, images that would have been very familiar to his audience. Well, it is very easily confirmed that the images that Paul used to teach his readers are historically consistent with what we know about the time and place that the epistle to the Ephesians was written and read. Everyone in that day knew the common parts of an ordinary soldier's armor and armament. So the fact that Paul used the correct term to define the word that's translated as sword of the Spirit, well, that not only imparted additional meaning to Paul's teaching, but it also helps us confirm the authenticity of the letter.
0: What you're saying is that we see no anachronisms in Paul's letters to the churches. If Paul had said, Take up the musket of the Spirit, we would instantly be alerted that the letter wasn't genuine. Even if he had said the Sarissa of the Spirit, we would have been alerted to a problem. The Sarissa was the extremely long spear carried by Greek warriors, but it would not have been part of a Roman soldier's normal arms. In other words, we have confirmation that Paul was writing during a period when people were well familiar with how a Roman soldier was equipped for battle. Paul's metaphor would have made far less sense if he weren't writing in the first century AD and he wasn't writing to people who knew the Roman army well. In a way, these are small, incidental details. So small, you almost think they weren't important. But the point of noticing them is that they illustrate the main point of this Paul's Places series. The epistles Paul wrote to the churches are not and do not read, as some critics assert, like myths or fairy tales. Instead, they are the straightforward letters of encouragement to readers who lived within the Roman Empire during the latter half of the 1st century A.D., which, of course, was the period immediately following the life of Jesus on this earth.
2: Exactly. When we realize that Paul was being accurate in such small details as correctly identifying the Roman soldier's normal sword— We can be sure that when Paul writes about the resurrection, the ascension, and the intervention of Christ, he's not being any less accurate about those supernatural things. The mundane information that Paul provides, without even a second thought as he's writing, confirms the reliability of the supernatural mysteries that Paul was conveying. You know, Christians live their entire lives in the here and now, but even in the here and now, we are already connected to a spiritual plane we connected to that spiritual plane by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit and by the intercession that Christ makes for us with the Father. Paul's letters to the various churches illustrate that connectivity between heaven and earth superbly.
0: This reinforces the big point that we are making in this Paul's Places series, the epistles. In the very first verse of the first book of the Bible, it connects heaven and earth, properly read. Every book after that reinforces the same connection. Paul could use the armor of an ordinary Roman soldier to accomplish an eternal purpose. We should do the same. Well, sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer for the restoration of the worship of the one true God to our communities and nation.
1: Prayer for Restoration of the Worship of the One True God lord of destiny god of holiness you ordained the fate of men and nations before the cornerstone of creation was laid you are blameless in all your acts and commands and therefore what you ordain must come to pass who among men can resist your will what you sovereignly declare will happen We rejoice that our hope rests in the power and mercy of an almighty God, and not in lesser beings. Lord, you know far better than we the blight that has come upon this nation. We have turned from honoring your name and seeking your will to self-exaltation and celebrating our rebellion. We cannot imagine how this must grieve you and give you justifiable cause for rebuke and reproof. We pray that you would raise up in our midst godly men and women who will be the leaders and teachers in a national renewal. We know that you have preserved a faithful remnant for yourself because you have assured us that the gates of hell could not prevail against your church. We praise you that Christ Jesus himself makes intercession for us while he sits at your right hand. We praise him and offer this and all prayers in his holy name. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where
2: We're not perfect, but our boss is.